Lampedusa is a small island in the Mediterranean Sea, a part of Italy at the southern end of the Palaci chain. It's about 20 square kilometers in area and has around 6,000 inhabitants. Fishing and tourism are the main industries there. It's long been a sleepy sort of place with beautiful beaches and vistas of the sea. All of which makes it a rather unlikely place for Pope Francis to have chosen for his first official visit outside of Rome after being consecrated as Pope in 2013. But that year, rather than traveling to some huge city or powerful government, he chose first to visit the little island of Lampedusa. His decision was prompted by news of a recent shipwreck not far from the island in which an overcrowded boat filled with people fleeing persecution and unrest in North Africa, capsized in the sea. Most of those on board quickly drowned. Eight survived the shipwreck and managed to swim to a fishing boat and to grab hold of the nets. But when the fishermen on board saw what was happening, they cut the lines and left those swimmers to drown as well. It was a story like so many others of people encountering danger and hostility in their desperate search for safety and a new life. So Pope Francis traveled to the little island and near a boat graveyard, a harbor containing the remains of many vessels that had washed up recently on the shore. He spoke about the call of the church to be in solidarity with people like those who had perished trying to cross the sea. He also celebrated the Eucharist there with a chalice that had been carved from driftwood recovered from another wrecked boat found on the shore. Philatamoyo, a member of our congregation, traveled to Lampedusa several times in the years after the Pope's visit for research and accompaniment of the local community. And from one of those visits, she brought back a cross also carved from wood recovered from a wrecked migrant boat that had found its way to the shore there. Our worship committee went looking for crosses a couple of weeks ago, and these that are on the window today are a few of the ones that turned up, offered by members of the community. It's a good reminder to me that there are any number of ways to make a cross, from the simple to the ornate, the beautiful and elegant, to the deliberately raw and even ugly. And each cross tells a story, something of an individual or community's life and what the cross has meant to them. We are a few weeks from Good Friday still, but the cross is never all that far away during the season of Lent. And as you heard, it's front and center in our reading from the Gospel of Mark today. We're dropping in at a pivotal moment in this gospel. We're almost exactly halfway through the book, and up until this point, Jesus' star has been rising very quickly. He burst out of the wilderness after his time of testing way back in chapter 1, and ever since, his ministry has been one astounding moment of success after another. Healing the sick here, casting out demons there, feeding thousands, quarreling with religious leaders, and walking away from all of it, with an ever-growing crowd of people hanging on his every word. It looks like this guy from small-town Galilee is really going places, 
and nothing can stop him. And then all of a sudden, seemingly out of the blue, he starts talking this way. Then the Son of Man, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He didn't even hide it, Mark says. He said this all quite openly. It's troublesome talk. And you can understand why Peter took, takes him aside and scolds him for it. And I think the trouble comes down to that little word, must. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering. Not might possibly or could one day perhaps, but must. What does Jesus mean there? Why must this happen for him? Well, I'll tell you what I don't think Jesus means. I don't think he's pointing to some elaborate atonement theology here, where God sent Jesus to die for human sin and even out the divine scales of justice. That theology, which was largely worked out about a thousand years after Jesus, turns up nowhere in the Gospel of Mark, and it doesn't make any sense that Jesus would somehow cryptically refer to it here. Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom of God, says this gospel, to call people to join in his work of healing and restoring the creation, of making room for everyone, of transforming the world in boundary-breaking love. To say that he really came only to die just doesn't make sense. So I don't think Jesus is saying that the purpose of his ministry is to suffer. And by the same token, he's not saying that the purpose of his disciples' ministry is to suffer either. Some have certainly read this passage that way, as pointing to a Christian life in which all suffering is simply to be endured in emulation of Jesus. Domestic abuse, violence, and neglect are not to be resisted, some have said, since Jesus patiently accepted the suffering given to him. It's a horrific misreading of this passage, and about as far from the teaching of Jesus as I can imagine. So Jesus isn't saying that the purpose of his life or that of his disciples is to suffer. But what do we make of that must then? Why must this happen to him? To answer that question, I think it helps to back up a few verses. Immediately before our reading today, Jesus and his disciples are walking together along the road when he asks them the question, who do people say that I am? And they tell him there's lots of talk of him being a prophet, maybe even Elijah himself. Fine, Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, jumping to the front yet again, responds, you're the Messiah. You're the one we've all been waiting for. The one who's going to restore our dignity and our freedom and our life. You're not just another prophet. You're the one. 2,000 years later, we're pretty used to that language, of course, of referring to Jesus as the Messiah. But for Peter to put those two things together for the first time that day on the road, the hope of the ages for restoration, and this seemingly pretty ordinary guy with dirt on his feet standing in front of them, to put those two together for the first time was a really big deal. And it's no wonder that none of the other disciples said anything. It was a breathtaking sort of declaration to make. 
even if they'd all been wondering the same thing themselves. You're the Messiah, Peter said, and Jesus didn't correct him. He seems to have accepted the title, but he's quick to clarify it, and that's where our reading comes in today. You all need to know where this is headed, he said. Before you get your heads all full of messianic fantasies about one victory after another, you need to hear this. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering. Why? Not because God's angry and demands a sacrifice. Not because suffering is somehow good or redemptive in and of itself. Jesus must undergo great suffering because the kingdom that he is proclaiming will most certainly be opposed. The kingdom where every person's dignity is honored, where no one is treated as disposable or insignificant, where no one is left out, where nothing gets in the way of the healing of God's people. That kingdom will be opposed by those in power, by those invested in the structures in place, by those benefiting from the way things have always been. And Jesus must undergo great suffering because even in the face of that opposition, he will not change his course. He will not stop proclaiming and enacting a gospel of love. He could have done something else, of course. He could have toned down his message when he sensed the opposition it was drawing, started preaching something a little bit more palatable to the authorities. Or he could have started training a rebel army with all of his disciples as commanders, planned for a showdown with the powers that be. But he would do neither of those things. Jesus would reject violence, and he would stay true to his proclamation and faithful to God's mission. And he recognized that for just those reasons, there was a cross ahead for him. For precisely those reasons, he must suffer. I don't know about you, but for me, that way of understanding the cross, not as the purpose of Jesus's ministry, but as the consequence of it, makes all the difference. It allows me to see the cross not as the tool of some legalistic and violent God who requires a sacrifice, but as the story of just how committed God is to the healing of the world. In Jesus, God will stop at nothing to embrace and reconcile this world and its people in love. Whatever the opposition, God will not turn back. And for me, that opens this image up wide. So you can make a cross out of driftwood from a shipwrecked boat. Because in Jesus, God came to seek the lost. And God will stop at nothing to hold those precious souls in love. Or you can make a cross out of beautiful painted porcelain because there is profound beauty in the story of Jesus's faithfulness. And you can make a cross with bright colors that evoke celebration because in this symbol of death, we learn how fiercely and tenaciously God is committed to life for all people. And you can even make a cross out of rainbows because in Jesus, the God who has always kept promises is keeping them still. Jesus must suffer because even in the face of opposition, he will not waver in his commitment to God's mission to heal and reconcile the world. So when he tells his disciples in the very next breath that there is suffering ahead for them as well, that they must pick up their crosses and follow, 
That's what I believe he means. They will face opposition too. If they join in this gospel work and stand up for the dignity and the inclusion of all. It's not an easy calling. But friends, don't miss the promise here. In following this one whose love leads to the cross and beyond, there is so much more than a burden to bear. In his company, there is life to be found. Thanks be to God. Amen.